encourage you to open up in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18 is our text for today. And the title of our message is Gospel Encouragement, Grieving with Hope. Gospel Encouragement, Grieving with Hope. And I want us to begin by reading through this passage of God's Word. hope that you are grateful for God's Word. We don't want to take it for granted. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. The Word of God says this, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. This is the word of the Lord. First Thessalonians was written to a particular group of people. The Christians in Thessalonica, the believers, the church there, and this particular group of people, these Christians, they lived in a particular culture, just like we do. And their culture was the Greek and the Roman culture. And this culture, like all other cultures, had its own philosophy regarding death, its own set of beliefs and worldview about death. I want to read you four short statements. Um, Each of these are from four different Greek and Roman philosophers And and this will give you an idea of the worldview that was shaping the minds and the hearts of uh, these Thessalonians before they came to faith in Christ. Here, Here you go. Here's the four statements. Number one, these are quotes from Roman and Greek philosophers. Of a man once dead, there is no resurrection. Second one, hopes are among the living. The dead are without hope. Number three. Suns may set and rise again, but we, when once our brief light goes down, must sleep an endless night. And the fourth one, no one awakes and arises who has once been overtaken by the chilling end of life. If you're feeling a little depressed after hearing those, uh, those are very depressing statements. One commentator summarized it this way. There was a common hopelessness in the face of death. I think that's an apt summary, perhaps even understated. Now imagine for a moment that that's the worldview concerning death that you were born into and raised believing. And then one day these guys named Paul and Silvanus, they show up in your city and they proclaim that there is hope of eternal life for all who believe in this man named Jesus. 
And your heart is drawn to this Jesus who died and rose from the dead and who is coming back to rescue all who belong to him. You believe in this Jesus. You're saved from your sins. And now you and all the other people in this city that have believed in Jesus, um, you're, you're eagerly waiting. You're anticipating the return of Jesus who's going to come and he's going to take you to live with them. And then one day, Brother Jim gets sick and dies. A couple of weeks later, Sister Susie is involved in an accident. And she dies. As you gather the next week for Sunday worship, you can hear the worried whispers as these new believers, these new Christians, previous worldview, which viewed the grave as hopeless, collides with their new worldview, which says that Jesus is coming back to rescue everyone who has believed in him. What about Jim and Susie? Are they going to miss out on the second coming of Jesus? Is hope only available for the saved who are alive when Jesus returns? What's going to happen to those who die before Jesus comes back? As the tears fall from your face and the faces of these new believers, you wonder if this good news of Jesus should, and if it can, if it could, change even the grief that you experience over the loss, over the death, of a fellow believer in Christ. What about you? Perhaps it's been not too long. Perhaps it's been a long time since you stood over the grave of a beloved brother or sister in Christ. As the tears filled your eyes, you began to wrestle with the good news of eternal life and the pain of letting go of someone that you so dearly love. Now, we know that the good news of Jesus is a message of hope, but can that hope infiltrate our grief? Can the gospel transform our grief in the face of death? Are there gospel truths that we can cling to when a fellow believer breathes his or her last breath? Does the gospel provide any encouragement as we consider those believers who die before Jesus comes back to take us to live with him? Our passage today answers those questions with a resounding yes, yes. Church, because of Jesus, we can have hope in the face of death. Because of Jesus, we can have hope in the face of death. Now, Paul and Silvanus, they showed up, they preached the gospel, some were saved, but then they moved on to another city. But they hear, probably through their friend Timothy, who we learned back in chapter 3, went and visited the Thessalonians and then came back and reported to Paul how they were doing. They probably learned through Timothy that some of the believers there were slipping into hopeless grief over the death of their brothers and sisters in Christ. They are, and so Paul and uh, Silvanus and Timothy, they're burdened for the Thessalonian believers. They want them to think rightly about their brothers and sisters in Christ who have died so that they will grieve appropriately over their deaths. And I want you to notice with me this morning four truths that should lead us to grieve with hope over the death of a brother or sister in Christ and even lead us to face our own death with hope as followers of Jesus. The first truth is this. It's very simple, but it's awesome. Our hope transforms our grief. Our hope transforms our grief. Now, Paul opens this section of the letter with these words, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. It's verse 13 there. That's how he opens this passage. 
Now, this verse sets it up, sets all that he's going to say up by telling us three things. First, in this verse, he tells us that the Thessalonian believers need to learn something. There's some information they need. They were uninformed regarding a matter of theology, a matter of doctrine. And Paul implies that this wasn't good. He wants them to be informed, not uninformed. It's good to be informed. I remember, I remember when I was a kid, I decided one day that I was going to surprise my dad when he came home from work by um, having some firewood already split. And so I got the axe and I went outside and I went to work and I, I swung that axe and I swung that axe and I swung that axe and 30 minutes later I was still looking at the same log and I was really sad and I hung my head and I did the walk of shame and I went inside and I waited for him to come home. When he came home, I told him what happened. And uh, this is a true story. I told him what happened, and he said, let's go outside and let's look at this log. And there lays this log with a bunch of axe marks in it, and it isn't any closer to being split than when I started swinging that axe. And uh, he looked at me, and he said, he said, son, he said, you can't split a piece of sweet gum with an axe. <laughs> I said, what? He said, that right there is sweet gum. And he said, you can't split it with an axe. He said, you will be here all day. He said, there's certain kinds of wood that you can split easy with an axe, and there's certain kinds you just it's not even worth trying. It would have saved me not only some sore hands, but really a defeated and hurt uh, sense of pride <laughs> um, if I had known that information ahead of time. Listen, Christianity is a belief system which informs and shapes our minds. We must think as Christians. And we must think rightly as as we're going to see the ignorance of the Thessalonians. Now, they're new believers and they didn't they didn't have first Thessalonians yet until Paul wrote it to them to know. But but their ignorance was robbing them of a joy which was uniquely theirs as believers in Christ. Unfortunately, I think too many Christians today are lazy with our minds. We're lazy sometimes with our minds. We, we would rather stare mindlessly at a screen, indulging our urge for entertainment, than gaze deeply into the things of God through the study of, the, of His Word. And the unfortunate result of that is that when we fail to inform our thinking with biblical truth, we find ourselves facing trials and decisions and circumstances in life ill-equipped to think rightly and therefore respond appropriately as followers of Jesus. And here's what ends up happening. We end up robbing ourselves of the joy and peace that comes when we view our lives from God's perspective. I said three things in, in this first verse. The first is they need to learn something. Second, we go ahead and we kind of start to figure out what they need to learn. Um, he, it says that they were, um, he's going to talk about those who are asleep. They're uninformed about those who are asleep. The Thessalonians were confused about believers who had died. That's what that word sleep means here. It's used to refer to death. Paul uses it three times in the first three verses of this passage. We know that he's not simply talking about somebody who's just taken a nap. He's actually talking about death when he uses the word sleep. One, because uh, this word is used in other places in Scripture to refer to death. Um, but also, looking at the context here, this passage would make no sense if they're just taking a nap. No one grieves over someone taking a nap, okay? No, no one grieves because somebody is simply asleep. Now, also, we see here in verse 15 that he contrasts being asleep with being alive. And then in verse 16, he switches from the word asleep to the phrase dead in Christ. So he actually uses the word death later. So when you see the word sleep or asleep in this passage, think death. And by the way, our word cemetery comes from this Greek word, meaning asleep. The cemetery it means a place of resting, a place of sleep. And then third, third, three things just in this one verse. Um, we begin to see Paul's goal. So he needs to tell him something. What does he need to tell him? Something about death. And what's his goal? 
The result of the Thessalonians becoming informed regarding those who have died should be that they will grieve differently than the world around them. They will grieve differently than the world around them. I want you to notice um, what Paul says at the end of verse 13. He says that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. Paul doesn't just simply want to give them some information just so they can like take a theological test and pass it. He wants us to shape and form and transform their lives, specifically grief in the face of death. There are some in our world who grieve without hope and there are some who grieve with hope. What's the difference? Well, church, the difference is belief in Jesus Christ who died and rose again. Salvation through belief in Jesus. Remember who Paul is writing to, the church of the Thessalonians, those chosen by God, those who received the gospel as the word of God, those who turned from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. That's what he said at the end of chapter 1. And so not only have their hearts been transformed, not only has their final destination been transformed, but Paul's going to say, listen, even the way you grieve right here on this earth has been transformed by the gospel. Already in chapter four, Paul has been teaching the believers how their lives are to look different than the world around them as they pursue sexual purity, as they pursue brotherly love. And now here's another way that we're to be set apart from the world around us as Christians. Brothers and sisters, one of the ways that we're to look different than the world around us is in the way that we grieve the death of a brother or sister in Christ. While the world would grieve with hopelessness, we grieve with hope. The gospel gives us a sure hope, and that hope transforms the way that we grieve. And that's just all in one, one verse. Just the introduction to this passage, just verse 13. Now we've got to get into the, the fun and glorious details. What were they to think concerning those who had died? Well, according to chapter 5... If you jump ahead, you'll you'll see that the Thessalonian believers had been taught that Jesus was coming back. They were informed of that. And that was really what was presenting the difficulty. They knew Jesus was coming back. The question was, is he just going to come back for those who are alive? Like, we're going to be waiting. We're going to be looking for Jesus. But what about those who are in the grave? Would the believers whose bodies were there in the graves miss out in some way when Jesus came back? That's what they were wrestling with. And so to answer this question, Paul first looks back to the first coming of Jesus Then he looks ahead to the second coming of Jesus. Truth number two is this. Our hope, church, is rooted in Jesus' past defeat of death. Our hope, our hope that transforms our grief is rooted in Jesus' past defeat of death. We see this in verse 14. Here Paul just jumps into informing the Thessalonians by going back to the first time Jesus came. He says this, for since, verse 14, for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Remember the issue, what's going to happen to believers who die before Jesus returned? Paul says through Jesus, God will bring them with him. Through Jesus, God will bring them with him. In other words, Thessalonians, they're not going to be left out. Don't you worry. They're not going to be left out. We have to ask this question, how can this be? We're talking about people who are dead. We're talking about people who are in the grave. How can people who have died, whose bodies have been buried, get to be a part of the return of Jesus? The answer is because Jesus died and rose again. The answer is because Jesus died and rose again. That's it. That core gospel truth that Jesus came and did what no human could ever do, defeat death. That is the root of our hope as believers in Christ. 
Because the grave was not the end of Jesus. The grave is not the end for all who believe in Jesus. The real resurrection of Jesus 2,000 years ago provides us with a real hope today as we face the reality of death. Church, Jesus has defeated death. Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 10, that Jesus abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. He abolished death. It's incredible. And then Peter wrote to Christians these following words of hope. I love these. Some of my favorite verses in the Bible. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Friends, Jesus has conquered the grave. Can somebody say amen? He's conquered the grave. He has. His death provides sufficient payment for our sins and His resurrection means that the grave is not the end. Hope is rooted in Jesus' past defeat of death. But now Paul turns from looking at the past to looking at the future. And this passage just gets more glorious and more glorious. Truth number three I want to share with you is this. Our hope anticipates Jesus' future return to gather all believers, both living and the dead. Our hope is rooted in the past, but it also anticipates, it looks ahead, it looks forward to, with eagerness, Jesus' future return. He's coming back to gather all believers both the living believers and the dead believers. In verses 15 through 17, Paul speaks in greater detail of the future event that he's already mentioned several times in this letter. And that future event is the second coming of Jesus. He's already used this exact word, this word coming, twice in the letter, and he's going to use it again before the letter is over. If you'll recall back in chapter 2, verse 19, you can look back there and you can see that he speaks of the coming of Jesus. And then in chapter 3, verse 13, Paul spoke of the coming of Jesus. He speaks of it here in chapter 4. And then in chapter 5, towards the very end of the letter, he's going to speak once again of the coming of Jesus. One of the main themes of First Thessalonians. Now, remember the question Paul seems to be addressing. What about the believers who died before Jesus comes back? Will they be left out in some way? As he looks ahead to the second coming of Christ, Paul gives a quick answer in verse 15. And then he zooms in and gives even more detail in verses 16 and 17. Verse 15 says this. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord. That ought to make us perk up and listen. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord. That we who are alive who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Now think about that. What's Paul saying there? They're wondering about the, the dead in Christ, those who, those who have died but have believed in Jesus. What's he saying? Not only will those believers who have died before Jesus returns not be left out when Jesus returns, they will precede. Or they will go before those who are alive. In other words, dead believers will be gathered to Jesus before living believers when Jesus returns. Now, as we look at Scripture, I don't think there'll be much time in between those. But notice the hope that he's giving them. Think about the hope this would have brought to the believers in Thessalonica who were mourning the death of at least one, but possibly multiple brothers and sisters in Christ. 
Not only are they not going to be left out, listen, they're going to see Jesus before the live ones see Jesus. It's basically what he's saying. But Paul's not done. He, he goes on in verse 16 and 17 to expand upon this teaching about the second coming of Christ. Verse 15 gives just a quick answer. Listen, they're not going to be left out. In fact, they're going to proceed. Let me go in a little bit more detail, Paul's saying, about what this second coming is going to look like. Now, before we look at verse 16 and 17, I've got to say a couple of things, okay? Number one, we don't have time to dive into every single question these verses might arouse in our curious minds. And we can have lots of great questions that these verses would bring to our minds. But that's okay, because the second thing I want to tell you before we walk through these is this. We need to remember that the purpose of this passage of Scripture, when Paul wrote this, his purpose was not to give every detail regarding the second coming of Christ, but to give enough detail so that the believers would grieve with hope. Remember the purpose, not to give us every detail that we might want, but to give us enough so that we would grieve with hope when a brother or sister in Christ passes away. Now, I want to walk through these two verses using four words. And I'm, I'm borrowing a couple of these words from the late John Stott. Um, and I just studying and reading some of his writing. I found these four words helpful in, in walking through verses 16 and 17. OK, so the four words are, are this uh, return, resurrection, rapture and reunion. Return, resurrection, rapture, and reunion. So let's use those four words to walk through verses 16 and 17. It begins by speaking of the return of Christ. Verse, verse 16 says this, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command and the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God. I, I don't know about you, I can just sit there and maybe read that about ten times and then just start singing and worshiping the Lord like, and just imagine what that's going to be like. Uh, we see in this verse that the return of Jesus is both personal and obvious. It's personal and obvious. It's personal in that Jesus himself will descend from heaven. Listen, Christianity is a set of beliefs that we want to grab hold of with our minds. But, they're, but then those truths about Jesus, they're to lead us to Jesus, to a personal relationship with Jesus. Jesus doesn't just send down from heaven just some facts about himself and says, read and memorize these things. He says, I want to have a relationship with you. And so he came the first time so that he could die for our sins and rise from the dead. But listen, when, when he comes back, he's not just going to send somebody on his behalf. He's not going to send uh, one of the angels on his behalf. He's coming. Why? Because he loves you and he loves me. He's coming to get those who belong to him. Just think about it. Jesus, born of the Virgin Mary, a carpenter's kid in Nazareth, calling to healing the sick, calming the storms, casting out demons, rebuking the Pharisees, teaching about the kingdom of God, dining with sinners and then dying for sinners, nailed to a cross, risen from the dead and then ascended to sit at the right hand of the throne of God. That Jesus descending for you and for me. I mean, that's awesome right there. It's a personal return of the Lord Jesus Christ. But it's also obvious. It's also obvious the first time Jesus came, he entered the world mostly unnoticed, except by a very blessed group of shepherds, right? I mean, that, I, golly, to see, see the heavens open and the angels, multitudes of the heavenly hosts singing and declaring praise of God. But if you think about it, not the whole world saw that, not even all of Bethlehem, just some shepherds out in the field. His first coming came mostly unnoticed. Uh, throw in some wise men from the east who saw a star, right? But that's about it. But when he comes back, church, 
It's going to be with a cry or a shout of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God. Friends, we don't know exactly what that's going to look like or sound like, but I think it's safe to say that there will be no doubt, at least for believers, all believers, what's taking place. I don't know what the cry of command or the voice of an archangel or the sound of the trumpet of God is going to sound like. I don't. I don't know what Jesus will look like other than he's going to have some scars in his hands and in his feet and in his side where he died for our sins. But I do know this, that whatever he looks like and whatever that moment sounds like, when the King of kings and Lord of lords steps out of heaven, brothers and sisters, we're not going to be speculating. We're going to be rejoicing that Christ has returned. For you and for me. What's going to happen when he returns? Well, that leads us to the second and third words. He paints an incredible picture of what it's going to look and sound like. But what's actually going to happen when he comes back? Second and third words. Second word is resurrection. We see this at the end of verse 16. Paul writes, and the dead in Christ will rise first. The dead in Christ will rise first. Here Paul confirms what he said back in verse 14 and 15. Those who are alive will not precede those who are asleep. But because Jesus died and rose again, all who have died believing in him will one day rise as well. Do you remember Jesus' words that he spoke to Martha when her brother Lazarus had died? Do you remember what he said? He said, your brother will rise again. She responded saying, yes, I know that he'll rise again on the last day. She believed in a future resurrection. But then then he clarifies it for her. He says this. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he dies, yet shall he live. And then what does Jesus do? He cries out with a command. Lazarus, come forth. And what happened? Lazarus got up out of the grave and he walked out. I, Jesus said, am the resurrection and the life. Listen, when Jesus shouts the cry of command, the dead in Christ will rise. In fact, the resurrection of dead believers was foreshadowed in a really unique way that sometimes maybe we don't think about. We read over this verse very quickly. When Jesus rose up from the dead, when he himself rose. um, If you go to Matthew, Matthew's account of the crucifixion, um, this is even before he gets to the resurrection. Matthew says this, Matthew 27, the tombs also were opened and many bodies, this is when Jesus died, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep There you go. There's the word asleep being used for death were raised and coming out of the tombs after his resurrection. They went into the holy city and appeared to many when Jesus died and rose up from the dead. A lot of graves opened up around Jerusalem. A lot of believers, those who had faith in the Lord, and they were resurrected. They were walking around Jerusalem. He foreshadowed the coming resurrection. Listen, Jesus resurrection caused the resurrection of believers. And the point here is that the dead in Christ will rise and they will rise first. Which, remember, going back to the question that's plaguing the Thessalonians, they're not going to miss out on anything when Jesus comes back. They're actually going to rise first. But what happens second? This gets to the third word. We had return. We had resurrection. Now we have rapture. Notice verse 17. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Again, this is one of those passages where it's, for time's sake, we got to keep going. But it's just so it's so tempting just to want to camp out and just spend some time just meditating on it, thinking about 
These incredible words. One theologian said that this word translated caught up, it might be translated different ways in your, um, in your translations. Um, he defined it this way, a sudden and forcible seizure, an irresistible act of catching away due to divine activity. You know, when I think about that, um, that definition, uh, it's a little cumbersome. And what it, what it makes me realize is even for this guy who's a Bible scholar, he can't really put into great words what this is going to be like. We just don't know exactly what it's going to be like. But it is this kind of snatching up or catching up. The Latin word that's used to translate this Greek word is the word from which we get the word rapture. Okay, so it comes from the Latin translation of the Bible. That's where we get the word rapture. But whether you use the word snatched up or caught up or raptured, whatever word you want to use, um, that's that's what's going to happen. Verse 17 goes on to say that those who are alive will be caught up or raptured together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So let's get this picture that that, um, the Apostle Paul is painting. The picture we're given is Jesus descending to the earth. And as he is descending, the dead in Christ rise and the living believers after, but probably right after, are raptured or caught up together with the resurrected believers And for at least a brief moment, the Lord and all of his followers are in the clouds having the best meeting you could ever hope to be a part of. You ever get that email or that call that says we got a meeting? You're like, oh, man, I hate meetings. Listen, I'm kind of there, too. It's not always my favorite thing. But but this one meeting I don't want to miss out on. They will meet the Lord in the air. Again, we don't have all the details we might wish to have, but we have all the details we need to have. Church. If I'm alive when Jesus returns, knowing that it is my Savior who's, who's going to come and sweep me off of my feet, that's enough for me. However He does that, whatever that feels like, whatever that looks like, if it's Jesus doing the rapturing, I know it's going to be good. It's going to be good. I do want you to notice two details that were given here. The word clouds and the word, the phrase, in the air. The reference to the clouds should come as no surprise. For one thing, clouds are often used in Scripture as, a, as kind of a, a symbol, a representation of the presence of God. But it should also make us think back to both Old Testament and New Testament prophecies of the coming Messiah King, as well as to Jesus' ascension back to heaven after his time on earth was over. Um, let's go back to an Old Testament prophecy. Jan- Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 says this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. So here's the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. Now let's go to a New Testament prophecy. This is actually Jesus prophesying. In Mark chapter 13, verse 26, Jesus said, And when they, uh, excuse me, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then let's jump ahead a little bit to when Jesus actually ascended back to the Father after his resurrection. Luke records this in Acts chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. And when he, Jesus, had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, the disciples, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. How did he go? He went on clouds. How's he coming back? Coming in the clouds. But I also want you to look at the second detail in the air. I think this is kind of, it's not kind of, it's incredible. It's it's awesome. It's neat. 
there's more behind this phrase in the air than just simply the location of this glorious meeting between the Lord and the saints. The air, the air is referenced in Scripture as Satan's territory. The air is referenced as Satan's territory. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2, describes Satan as the prince of the power of the air. The prince of the power of the air. And so, get, get the picture get it here. Like, see, the, see it. The Lord Jesus is holding his victory over death for believers meeting right in the middle of Satan's headquarters. Think about it like a winning football team having vic- their victory celebration in their opponent's locker room. <laughs> How's that for in your face? <laughs> right? One writer put it this way, that the Lord chooses to meet his saints there on the demon's home ground, so to speak, shows something of his complete mastery over them. Indeed it does. Talk about a statement of victory and supremacy and lordship over everyone and everything. At the coming of King Jesus. But then this really just leads right into that fourth word that I wanted to um, share with you. And that's the, the word reunion. Really, it's the point of all this. This is where Paul's getting to. Remember, he, his goal here is to give hope. His goal is to give hope to, to these believers who are, who are mourning and grieving the death of their brothers and sisters in Christ. Reunion. The end of verse 17 gives us the result of Jesus' return and the resurrection and the rapture of believers. And so... Verse 17 says, we will always be with the Lord. Now, remember the context. Believers grieving the death of fellow believers, wondering what the future holds for them when it comes to the return of Jesus. Are they going to miss out on the second coming of Jesus? If I'm alive when Jesus returns, will he take me but not them? That's what they were wrestling with. And Paul's answer was to transform our grief from hopeless grief into hopeful grief is this. We will Always be with the Lord. We, meaning believers who die before Jesus returns and believers who are alive when Jesus returns, will always be with the Lord. Many will be resurrected, the dead in Christ. Some who are still alive, they're going to be raptured. But at the end of the day and for every day thereafter, we will be together and we will be with the Lord. Church, this is the climax of Christianity. To be with the Lord. Once again, we're not given all the details we might wish to have regarding what it's going to be like to be with the Lord. But we know all we need to know to quiet our hearts in the midst of the trial of death. The grave is not the end for we will be with the Lord. Now, it's not wrong for us to examine scripture and learn all that God has revealed to us concerning uh, the end times and eternity. But all. If you think about it, all other details of our existence after this life are rendered nearly irrelevant in light of the revelation that we will always be with the Lord. Here's what I mean by that. At the end of the day, my curiosity is satisfied just knowing that I will be with Jesus. Just knowing that I will be with Jesus. Friend, if being with Jesus is not the longing of your heart, then your heart does not belong to Jesus. This is what being saved, this is what being a Christian is all about. Being reconciled to the God who made us, forever living in His presence, though we deserve to forever be rejected 
from his presence. When God created humanity, we had a perfect relationship with God. God dwelled in the garden with Adam and Eve, but sin destroyed that relationship. Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden, which meant they were kicked out of God's presence. And they tried to cover their guilt, but they couldn't. And neither can we. But God sovereignly and graciously sent a man born of woman to endure the punishment of God's rejection by dying in our place and to defeat death by rising from the dead. And this man is Jesus, the son of God. He came and he died on a cross. And as he hung there and during the wrath of God, do you remember one of the things he said? He cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then he died and was buried. But on the third day, he rose from the grave. What's all that mean? Friend, it means that Jesus endured separation from the Father so that you could enjoy his presence. That's what happened on the cross. Jesus endured being separated from the Father so that we wouldn't have to, so that we could enjoy his presence. Jesus was rejected so you could be accepted. Jesus came the first time to do everything necessary to secure a place for every believer at this glorious reunion when he returns. Listen, the best thing for us as humans is to be with the God who made us. Sin separates us from that God, but Jesus destroyed. He abolished that separation. The question is this, do you believe in him? Do you trust in Jesus to satisfy the longing of your heart, to be rescued from your sin? If you do, then you can grieve with hope the death of fellow believers. If you've not believed in Jesus for salvation, you need to. You need to. And you can do so today. Listen, when Jesus returns, he's not going to gather believers and potential believers. He's just going to gather believers. That is those who have already believed in Jesus, not those who are still thinking about it. But before we close, we've got to look at this last verse, verse 18, and it gives us the fourth and final truth I want to share with you. And this is really just the conclusion. This is where Paul's been leading this whole time. Fourth and final truth is this. Our hope helps us encourage one another as we face death. Church, our hope, our hope, it allows us, it helps us to encourage one another. As we face death. Remember the context. How do we as believers face the death of fellow believers? We grieve with hope. Paul says in verse 18, therefore, in light of all this that I've said, therefore, he gives a command, encourage one another, encourage one another with these words. Paul doesn't just want to encourage the believers. He wants the believers in the church at Thessalonica to encourage one another. He has informed them of the truth that transformed their grief. And now he wants them to take what they've learned and encourage one another as they face death as believers in Christ. And so, church, don't keep this hope to yourself. Don't let Jesus' past defeat of death and his future uh, return to raise the dead in Christ and rapture believers who are alive. Don't let that serve to comfort just you. You encourage one another with these words. It's not just my job as, as, a, as a pastor. It's all of our roles to encourage one another. You know it. You know it now. You have the information. So let's speak the hope of the gospel to grieving brothers and sisters in Christ. When someone dies who is a believer in Christ, God wants you to grieve with hope. And he wants you to help your brothers and sisters in Christ grieve with hope as you cling to the gospel and speak gospel encouragement to one another. Can I just throw this in there, too? While we're at it, let's make sure we speak this hope of the gospel to those who don't know Jesus as well, so that they too can be a part of 
having a hope that extends beyond the grave. The Apostle Paul wrote this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 51 through 56. I'm actually going to start halfway through verse 54. He said this, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Notice these final words. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through who? Our Lord Jesus Christ. Church, because of Jesus, we can have hope in the face of death. And so be encouraged. Would you bow your heads? Heavenly Father, would you help us to take this moment to reflect on your word and the hope that we have? Father, would you help us to take this moment to confess any sin to you? Help us to take this moment to thank you that you have conquered the grave. Father, in this moment, would you encourage our hearts with the truth of your word and the hope of Jesus. You keep your heads bowed and your eyes closed and you just take just a minute to spend some time with the Lord praying about whatever he's laid on your heart through his word.